0: Good morning to you, a very warm welcome to our morning service here at Brighton Road Baptist Church. My name's Tim Carter, glad you could join us. I'm gonna start with a prayer. The words are on the screen. Uh, You might just wanna sit and listen and reflect, but I'm gonna say the words slowly. And if you'd like to join with me, you are very welcome to do so. So, we prepare for worship. God of our salvation, God of glory, God, our rock, God, our refuge, God of mercy, God of loving kindness, God of power, we come and pour out our hearts in praise to you.
1: morning. Today's first reading comes from Psalm 33 and starts at verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you.
0: The old farmer thought that young Jacob was mad when he said he wanted to buy the field from him. For years Jacob had worked as a labourer in that field trying in vain to get a decent harvest out of it for his boss. But the quality of the soil was just so poor that the farmer sometimes wondered if he was wasting his money getting Jacob to work there because year after year the returns were just so rubbish. The farmer had Sometimes wondered whether he ought to sell the field, but who on earth would want to buy a field like that? Well, if Jacob wanted it, the farmer would sell it to him, of course, but at a price. Jacob's wife thought he was mad. You want to buy that field? You've worked there all these years and it's never produced a single thing worthwhile. No man in his right mind would do such a thing. How much does he want for it? Even with all our savings, we couldn't possibly afford that. No way, not on earth, not ever. The villagers all thought that Jacob was mad when he put everything he possessed up for auction. Jacob had never earned a great deal of money, but he'd married well and his wife had come with a decent dowry and over the years he and his wife had used that money to get some pretty decent stuff. Lots of people were glad to get their hands on it even though Jacob's wife was standing there with a face like thunder as she saw her precious household items go one by one under the hammer. Come with me, Jacob said to his wife next day. I'm not going anywhere with you. You've gone completely mad, was the angry retort. Please, come with me, he said again. I want to show you something in the field I bought. I'll never forgive you for what you did, she said. My mother was absolutely right about you. I should have listened to her instead of marrying you. It's the worst thing I ever did. Jacob pleaded. He cajoled. He entreated for hours until eventually, grudgingly, angrily, she agreed to come with him to the field. Jacob brought his spade along and took her to a corner of the field where the ground was just so full of stones that nothing ever grew. And his wife just stood and watched him in one of those silences. When he dug a hole, Jacob called his wife to come and have a look. Sulkily, she got up and came over. The next moment, she was hugging him in excitement and amazement because buried in the field which Jacob had just bought, was an absolute fortune in hidden treasure, which now, legally, belonged to them. You know, Jesus said that discovering the kingdom of God is is like stumbling across treasure hidden in a field. It's so valuable, so precious, it's worth giving everything else up just to get your hands on it. That means that if you have the kingdom, you have the greatest treasure there is, something of eternal value that money can't buy. Jacob, in that story, sold everything he had to buy that field because he knew how much it was really worth. So I guess the question is, how much is Jesus really worth to you? of Judah is one of the most ambiguous characters in the Old Testament. He came to the throne at the tender age of 12 and he reigned for 55 years making him the longest reigning monarch in the history of Israel and Judah. In the eyes of the author of the Book of Kings it was in Manasseh's reign that the country really went off the rails. His wickedness was a key factor in God's decision to hand his people over to their enemies and send the nation into exile in Babylon. Chronicles has a different take on Manasseh though. Chronicles records that during a period of imprisonment in Babylon, Manasseh humbled himself before God. And because God saw his repentance, God restored him to his kingdom and his throne. Jewish tradition ascribed to Manasseh a prayer of repentance. And I'm going to use that prayer now as part of our worship. Let me lead you in prayer. Almighty God, Lord of our fathers, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and of their righteous posterity, who made heaven and earth in their manifold array, who fettered the ocean by your word of command, who closed the abyss and sealed it with your fearful and glorious name, before your power all things quake and tremble. The majesty of your glory is more than can be borne. None can endure the threat of your wrath against sinners. Your promised mercy is beyond measure, and none can fathom it. For you are Lord Most High, compassionate, patient, and of great mercy, relenting when men suffer for their sins. For out of your great goodness, Lord, you have promised repentance and remission to those who have sinned against you. And in your boundless mercy, you have appointed repentance for sinners as the way to salvation. Therefore, Lord God of the righteous, you appointed repentance, not for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who were righteous and did not sin against you, but for me, whose sins outnumber the sands of the sea. My transgressions abound, Lord, My transgressions abound. And because of the multitude of my wrongdoings, I am not worthy to look up and gaze at the height of heaven. Bowed down with many an iron chain, I grieve over my sins and find no relief because I have provoked your anger and done what is wrong in your eyes, setting up idols and so multiplying offences. Now, My heart submits to you, imploring your great goodness. I have sinned, Lord. I have sinned. And I acknowledge my transgressions. I beg and beseech you, spare me, Lord, spare me. Destroy me not with my transgressions on my head. Do not be angry with me forever or store up punishment for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth, for you, Lord, are the God of the penitent. You will show your goodness towards me. For unworthy as I am, you will save me in your great mercy. And I shall praise you continually all the days of my life. The whole host of heaven sings your praise and yours is the glory for ever. Amen.
1: Hello everyone, I shall be reading from Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the Church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts
2: Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray for our world and for loved ones. In the midst of a global pandemic, we cry out to you for help in our time of great need. Minister to the sick and dying, bring comfort to the bereaved. Come alongside the lonely and the lost. Strengthen the weary and exhausted, sustain the overworked and overwhelmed. Provide for the overlooked and neglected. Bring rescue and release for all who suffer abuse and adversity. Give wisdom to those who lead, shoulder burdens and bring rest. Graciously grant transformation of our world for the better. Address inequalities and injustice. Enable individuals, families, communities and society to experience healing, regeneration, peace and hope. Through Christ Jesus we pray. We live in times when much of the construct of our daily lives is laid aside or looks and feels so different. So, Father, give us each day our daily needs. We see how fragile and precious the gifts of life and hope are in our hands. We see how easily they can be swept aside. In our relationships with each other, Help us to love others as we ourselves are loved by you. Help us to surrender ourselves more fully to you. Keep us faithful and obedient to your word. May our lives be fruitful and reflect something of your glory. In humility, Lord, we pray for peace in our troubled world. We pray for our town, our nation, We lift up the United States of America in these days. We pray for lands where war, famine and disease are the norm. We pray for lands where our brothers and sisters in Christ are persecuted. We thank you for the freedoms we have enjoyed and we lament our taking for granted such freedoms. Lead us in the way of repentance Turn us from sin and turn us towards trust in him who died for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as church to be a beacon of your grace and truth. Amen.
3: A famed crime writer dedicated a book to me. It is to be found in her book The Secret Adversary and reads, to all those who lead monotonous lives in the hope that they may experience at second hand the delights and dangers of adventure. Well I admit it stretching it a little bit to infer it was for, for me alone but it is the truth to say that I have always loved a good detective mystery and as a young teen I read half of Christie's 64 murder mysteries uh, this is just a few of them and it continues to be my intention to uh, to read the other half. Having read a good number of them um, I would pride myself on, on how increasingly quickly I was able to identify the murderer and solve the mystery. I suppose that's part of the charm, self-congratulatory smugness at your own ability to solve a seemingly but rather um, formulaic, sorry Agatha, mystery. Uh, Today's text also deals with a mystery. The word mystery is actually used four times within six verses of Ephesians 3. And as we found out last week, it's also mentioned in our previous chapter and it seems to me, therefore, that it's worth our investigation. Ephesians 3 can be divided into two parts, the first of which we shall be looking at most closely. It's verses 1 to 13 and it comprises predominantly of Paul's account concerning his appointment and its purpose. The latter verses of 14 to 21 are a prayer for the Christians of Ephesus in the light of this teaching. As an aside, it may well be Paul's practice to mix counsel with prayer. Instruction given has the tendency to be pretty useless without the power of God's intervention in our lives. Perhaps this is a pattern we should adopt, advice supported by prayer, for surely life changes need imbuing with the Holy Spirit, the empowering Holy Spirit. Anyway, before we turn to the mystery, let us establish something of Paul's situation. He writes the Ephesians in Greece from the discomfort of prison in Rome. And having been placed there, he's now writing to them around sort of 60, 62 AD. And why is he in prison? Well, for having revealed the mystery to those in Rome and the authorities of Rome not being happy about it. He is one who, from the casual onlooker, would be seen as having great authority within the church. But Paul explains and takes great pains that his office, his role and his authority to the church in Ephesus in verse 2, he's an an administrator of God's grace. Verse 7, he's a servant of the gospel. And in verse 8, the least of all God's people. These are not lofty positions that Paul is describing here. Any authority that Paul has, he's making it clear it derives from God. It doesn't emanate from him, but is instead gifted to him. In other words, God has called him rather than Paul has assumed the position. And it is God that has supplied Paul with what is necessary for his calling. In other words, for those of you procrastinating about whether you should step out step out and take on that responsibility, know and be assured that if this is God's calling, it is He that shall fit you for the task and so, to the mystery first mentioned in this chapter in verse three, the mystery Paul's writes Paul writes made known to me by revelation. This is a revealed mystery. Now, with Christie, the great reveal always happens at the end when all are gathered together. Here, Paul says it is to be a mystery no more. And it is this, that both Jew and Gentile are fellow heirs of the heavenly inheritance and they can together be members of the same body, the church. They are to be co-inheritors, not indirectly through the Jews or by becoming a Jew, but directly as Gentiles, directly invited and admitted through the gospel, and therefore able to enjoy all the privileges that come through knowing him. Why is that such a mystery? Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and, and here it seems so obvious to us all that no matter what your background, your culture or your history, nothing need prevent you from claiming membership as a child in God's family. And yet this has indeed been a great mystery. One, because it was not known, and two, because it was not understood. The idea of the coalition of Jew and Gentile, that was just unthinkable. And yet this has been God's plan all along. He had created all and intended that all might have the opportunity to know him. However, though intended since the beginning of creation, It had not been understood for the generations thereafter, for it had remained concealed, with only small windows into God's plan for humanity to see, via his covenant people of Israel, until in fullness it would be made known through Christ Jesus. There was to be no sense of self-congratulatory smugness at working out God's plan. Only in time through revelation might it be known. The starting point for understanding was not to be humanity itself. The starting point for understanding was to be God and through God in Christ. That is how it was to be made known. In Acts 26, verse 16 to 18, Paul tells Agrippa his story and we're given an insight into this revelation of God's mystery that all might know the freedom that comes from knowing him. And so we read, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecuted, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are not sanctified by faith in me. God is the author of our salvation. Paul wasn't saved because he was a Jew. He wasn't saved because he was clever and had worked it out. It was because and only because of Christ. What Christ did on the cross and revealing to Paul the personal significance of it. In verse 4, Of Ephesians 3 Paul says that in reading this then the Ephesians will be able to understand the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit why is it called the mystery of Christ it is because as we saw in that Acts passage as to in Galatians 1 verse 12 The mystery of the gospel is not revealed by a person. He wasn't taught it, but it had been shown to him by Christ himself. It was from Jesus, as it relates to Jesus. So, the great ta-da moment, the great mystery revealed, is that you and I, though guilty, may go free as Jesus took our punishment. The people of Israel who thought they had it made by being God's chosen people aren't saved by knowing the law. Gentiles who think that God has nothing to do with them are wrong because they too are a part of his plan. How's that for a didn't see it coming plot twist? What has the potential to continue to be a mystery to some is that our past is also irrelevant in terms of how God sees us. If we put our faith in him, we can all, no matter who we are, enjoy the unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul writes about in verse 8. So what are these riches that Paul speaks of? Well, the riches of Christ could be in his nature as God, in his perfection, in his abundance of mercy, grace and love. Now usually, precious things are rare, and it's this that makes them of such value. Well, this is not the case with God. That which is truly most precious, God abounds in. This is why they are unsearchable, as Paul puts it. Not because they cannot be found, but because they are infinite. I read this illustration by J.H. Howitt, uh, that I found helpful, of a a person trying to measure and track the borders and confines of a lake, only to discover there was no lake at all, but an arm of the ocean, and that he was confronted by the immeasurable sea. As Francis Fawkes wrote, the unsearchable riches are not simply the gospel, not doctrine, but Christ himself. Paul wants us to know the boundless, the infinite, the immeasurable nature of Christ, who pours out his love and grace and mercy upon us who would receive it. The riches of Christ are also to be understood in terms of what is to be received with Christ as our mediator. The riches of grace the undeserved inheritance that comes through his death on the cross, so that we might be saved. With Christ mediating for us, we may know and receive something of the abundance of his sustaining power and love, and be received into glory. These are riches indeed. Paul often uses that terms that speak of wealth to express God's blessings that come through Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7 is just one such example where we read of the riches of God's grace. The riches of Christ are truly immeasurable when one reflects on how diverse and large his adopted family is and how wonderfully he cares and provides for them. It is a wondrous thing that God might invest into these earthly vessels such precious treasure. So now that the mystery has been revealed and God's purpose been made known, what next? Well, verse 12. In Him and through Him, and sorry, in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. When we are tempted to lose heart, to give up hope, Paul says we need not. In our weakness, God may be made known. Paul was suffering in prison because he was preaching Christ to the Gentiles. But his sufferings were the Ephesians' glory. Verse 13. And so, we hold on... In our present sufferings, so to that great mystery revealed of being co-inheritors of the unsearchable riches of Christ, we too may have boldness when we are at our weakest. It seems therefore only right to do as Paul did and pray using these words for you now. Let's pray. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, for ever and ever. Amen.
4: May the grace of our Lord
3: Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy
1: Spirit, be with us all, now and for evermore.
4: Amen. side.